Section 8 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Career of Albert the Great. A.D. 871-901 by John R. Green Alfred was the noblest, as he was the most complete embodiment of all that is great, all that is lovable in the English temper. He combined, as no other man has ever combined, its practical energy, its patient and enduring force, its profound sense of duty, the reserve and self-control that steady in it a wide outlook and a restless daring, its temperance and fairness, its frank geniality, its sensitiveness to action, its poetic tenderness, its deep and passionate religion. Religion, indeed, was the groundwork of Alfred's character. His temper was instinct with piety. Everywhere throughout his writings that remain to us the name of God, the thoughts of God, stir him to outbursts of ecstatic adoration. But he was no mere saint. He felt none of that scorn of the world about him which drove the nobler souls of his day to monastery or hermitage. Vexed as he was by sickness and constant pain, his temper took no touch of asceticism. His rare geniality, a peculiar elasticity and mobility of nature, gave color and charm to his life. A sunny frankness and openness of spirit breathed in the pleasant chat of his books, and what he was in his books he showed himself in his daily converse. Alfred was in truth an artist, and both the lights and shadows of his life were those of the artistic temperament. His love of books, his love of strangers, his questionings of travelers and scholars betray an imaginative restlessness that longs to break out of the narrow world of experience which hemmed him in. At one time he jots down news of a voyage to the unknown seas of the north. At another he listens to tidings which his envoys bring back from the churches of Malabar. And side by side with this restless outlook of the artistic nature, he showed its tenderness and susceptibility, its vivid apprehension of unseen danger, its craving for affection, its sensitiveness to wrong. It was with himself, rather than with his reader, that he communed as thoughts of the foe without, of ingratitude and opposition within, broke the calm pages of Gregory or Bothius. Oh, what a happy man was he, he cries once, that man that had a naked sword hanging over his head from a single thread. So as to me it always did, desirest thou power, he asks at another time, but thou shalt never obtain it without sorrows, sorrows from strange folk, and yet keener sorrows from thine own kindred. Hardship and sorrow, he breaks out again. Not a king, but would wish to be without these if he could, but I know that he cannot. The loneliness which breathes in words like these has often begotten in great rulers, a cynicism, contempt of men, and the judgments of men. But cynicism found no echo in the large and sympathetic temper of Alfred. He not only longed for the love of his subjects, 
but for the remembrance of generations to come. Nor did his inner gloom or anxiety check for an instant his vivid and versatile activity. To the scholars he gathered round him, he seemed the very type of a scholar, snatching every hour he could find to read or to listen to books read to him. The singers of his court found in him a brother singer, gathering the old songs of his people to teach them to his children, breaking his renderings from the Latin with simple verse, solacing himself in hours of depression with the music of the Psalms. He passed from court and study to plan buildings and instruct craftsmen in gold work, to teach every falconer and doll keepers their business. But all this versatility and ingenuity was controlled by a cool, good sense. Alfred was a thorough man of business. He was careful of detail, laborious, methodical. He carried in his bosom a little handbook in which he noted things as they struck him. Now a bit of family genealogy, now a prayer, now such a story as out of Ethelhem, playing minstrel on the bridge. Each hour of the day had its appointed task. There was the same order in the division of his revenue and in the arrangement of his court. Wide, however, and various as was the king's temper, its range was less wonderful than its harmony. Of the narrowness, of the want of proportion, of the predominance of one quality over another which go commonly with an intensity of world purpose, Alfred showed not a trace. Scholar and soldier, artist and man of business, poet and saint, his character kept that perfect balance which charms us in no other Englishman save Shakespeare. But full and harmonious as his temper was, it was the temper of a king. Every power was bent to the work of rule. His practical energy found scope for itself in the material and administrative restoration of the wasted land. His intellectual activity breathed fresh life into education and literature. His capacity for inspiring trust and affection drew the hearts of Englishmen to a common center and began the upbuilding of a new England. And all was guided, controlled, and ennobled by a single aim. So long as I have lived, said the king, as life closed about him, I have striven to live worthily. Little by little, men came to know what such a life of worthiness meant. Little by little, they came to recognize in Alfred a ruler of a higher and nobler stamp than the world had seen. Never had it seen a king who lived solely for the good of his people. Never had it seen a ruler who set aside every personal aim to devote himself solely to the welfare of those whom he ruled. It was this grand self-mastery that gave him his power over the men about him, warrior and conqueror as he was. They saw him set aside at thirty the warrior's dream of conquest, and the self-renouncement of Wedmore struck the keynote of his reign. But still more is it this height and singleness of purpose, this absolute concentration of the noblest faculties to the noblest aim, that lifts Alfred out of the narrow bounds of Wessex. If the sphere of his action seems too small to justify the comparison of him with a few whom the world owns as its greatest men, he rises to their level in the moral grandeur of his life, and it is this which has held his memory among his own English people. I desire, said the king in some of his latest words, I desire 
to leave to the men that come after me a remembrance of me in good works. His aim has been more than fulfilled. His memory has come down to us with a living distinctness through the mists of exaggeration and legend which time gathered round it. The instinct of the people has clung to him with a singular affection. The love which he won a thousand years ago has lingered round his name from that day to this, while every other name of those earlier times has all but faded from the recollection of Englishmen, that of Alfred remains familiar to every English child. The secret of Alfred's government lay in his own vivid energy. He could hardly have chosen braver or more active helpers than those whom he employed, both in his political and in his educational efforts. The children whom he trained to rule proved the ablest rulers of their time. But at the outset of his reign he stood alone. What work was to be done was done by the king himself. His first efforts were directed to the material restoration of his realm. The burnt and wasted country saw its towns built again, forts erected in positions of danger, new abbeys founded, the machinery of justice and government restored, the laws codified and amended. Still more strenuous were Alfred's efforts for its moral and intellectual restoration. Even in Mercia and Northumbria, the pirate sword had left few survivors of the schools of Egbert or Bede, and matters were worse in Wessex, which had been as yet the most ignorant of the English kingdoms. When I began to reign, said Alfred, I cannot remember one priest south of the Thames who could render his service book into English. For instructors, indeed, he could find only a few Mercian prelates and priests, with one Welsh bishop, Asser. Formerly, the king writes bitterly, men came hither from foreign lands to seek for instruction, and now when we desire it, we can only obtain it from abroad. But his mind was far from being imprisoned within his own island. He sent a Norwegian shipmaster to explore the White Sea, and will stand to trace the coast of Estonia. Envoys bore his presence to the churches of India and Jerusalem, and an annual mission carried Peter's pence to Rome. But it was with the Franks that his intercourse was closest, and it was from them that he drew the scholars to aid him in his work of education. A scholar named Grimbald came from St. Omer to preside over his new abbey at Winchester, and John, the old Saxon, was fetched from the Abbey of Corbray to rule a monastery and school that Alfred's gratitude for his deliverance from the Danes raised in the marshes of Athelney. The real work, however, to be done was done not by these teachers, but by the king himself. Alfred established a school for the young nobles in his court, and it was to the need of books for these scholars in their own tongue that we owe his most remarkable literary effort. He took his books as he found them. They were the popular manuals of his age, the consolation of Bothius, the pastoral of Pope Gregory, the compilation of Orosius, then the one accessible handbook of universal history and the history of his own people by Bede. He translated these works into English, but he was far more than the translator. He was an editor for the people. Here he admitted, there he expanded. He enriched the Rosius by a sketch of the new geographical discoveries in the north. He gave a West Saxon form to his selections from Bede. In one place, he stops to explain his theory of government, his wish for a thicker population, 
his conception of national welfare as consisting in a due balance of priest, soldier, and churl. The mention of Nero spurs him to an outbreak on the abuses of power. The cold providence of Bothius gives way to an enthusiastic acknowledgment of the goodness of God. As he writes, his large-hearted nature flings off its royal mantle, and he talks as a man to men. Do not blame me, he prays with a charming simplicity, if any knew Latin better than I. For every man must say what he says, and do what he does according to his ability. But simple as was his aim, Alfred changed the whole front of our literature. Before him, England possessed in her native tongue one great poem in the train of ballads and battle songs. Prose she had none. The mighty roll of the prose books that fill her libraries begins with the translations of Alfred, and above all, with the chronicle of his reign. It seems likely that the king's rendering of Bede's history gave the first impulse towards the compilation of what is known as the English or Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which was certainly thrown into its present form during his reign. The meager list of the kings of Wessex and the bishops of Winchester, which had been preserved from older times, were roughly expanded into a national history by insertions from Bede, but it is when it reaches the reign of Alfred that the chronicle suddenly widens into the vigorous narrative, full of life and originality, that marks the gift of a new power to the English tongue. Varying as it does from age to age in historic value, it remains the first vernacular history of any Teutonic people, and save for the Gothic translations of Ulthius, the earliest and most venerable monument of Teutonic prose. But all this literary activity was only a part of that general upbuilding of Wessex by which Alfred was preparing for a fresh contest with the stranger. He knew that the actual winning back of the Dane law must be a work of the sword, and through these long years of peace, he was busy with the creation of such a force as might match that of the Northmen. A fleet grew out of the little squadron which Alfred had been forced to man with Frisian seamen. The national ford, or levy, of all freemen at the king's call was reorganized. It was now divided into two halves, one which served in the field, while the other guarded its own burrs and townships, and served to relieve its fellow when the men's forty days of service were ended. A more disciplined military force was provided by subjecting all owners of five hides of land to thane service, a step which recognized the change that had now substituted the thane for the earl, and in which we see the beginning of a feudal system. How effective these measures were was seen when the new resistance they met on the continent drove the Northmen to a fresh attack on Britain. In 893, a large fleet steered for the Andronsfeld, while the sea king Hastings entered the Thames. Alfred held both at bay through the year till the men of the Danelaw rose at their comrades' call. Wessex stood again, front to front with the Northmen, but the king's measures had made the realm strong enough to set aside its old policy of defense for one of vigorous attack. His son Edward and his son-in-law Ethelred, whom he had set as aldermen, over what remains of Mercia, showed themselves as skillful and active as the king. The aim of the Northmen was to rouse again the hostility of the Welsh, but while Alfred held Exeter against their fleet, Edward and Ethelred caught their army near the Severn and overthrew it with a vast slaughter at Buddington. The destruction of their camp on the Lee by the United English forces ended the war. In 897, Hastings again withdrew across the Channel, and the Dane law made peace.
It was with the peace he had won still about him that Alfred died in 901, and warrior as his son Edward had shown himself, he clung to his father's policy of rest. End of section 8